Welcome to this weekly audio digest edition of the Herald Scotland, from Friday the 1st to Friday the 8th of March 2019, read by volunteers at Q&Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. The headlines in part 1. Press freedom at risk of being edged out in a world of extremes. Suitcase and guitar in hand, Simon Kempston on how his travels inspire him. John Kennedy, there was no chance I was leaving Celtic for Leicester City. Sex workers aim to shape the future of Scotland's prostitution laws. Neil Lennon hints at Mikhail Lustig still having a Celtic future. Punk poet John Cooper Clark comes to Glasgow to reveal his debt to Bernard Mar- Manning. Damien Duff, Celtic is more than a club, you're fighting for a cause. The Herald, Monday, March 4th. The Alan Rodden Column. Press freedom at risk of being edged out in a world of extremes. Occupying one seat around the dinner table in Hanoi was an egotistical megalomaniac with a profound distaste for the free press. Next to him in the restaurant of the Sophie Tell legend Metropole Hotel was North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. The dinner in Vietnam between Donald Trump and his one-time adversary was another extraordinary moment in this extraordinary relationship, but what was most telling was who wasn't there. Reporters from the Associated Press, Bloomberg News, the Los Angeles Times and Reuters were banned from covering the dinner. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders blocked their entry for what she described as sensitivities over shouted questions in the previous sprays. Sprays being the United States term for when journalists attend meetings between the President and foreign leaders. What questions had angered the Trump administration so much? Well, one was about the congressional testimony of former attorney Michael Cohen, whose explosive claims can be summed up in his description of the president as a racist, a cheat and a con man. Mr Trump's fondness for blocking journalistic access is not new but it was described in no uncertain terms by the Washington Post as an extraordinary act of retaliation by the United States government. The fact that it happened during a meeting with the leader of a totalitarian state, which doesn't have a free press, wasn't lost on those locked out of the room. In fact, while in Hanoi, Kim Jong-un even answered a question from a foreign journalist for what was believed to be the first time. Mr Trump's actions, more than two years into his presidencies, have inevitably lost some of their surprise. On this side of the pond, they are greeted with a shake of the head and a sense of relief that, whatever the latest incredible twist in the Brexit saga, At least our journalists are free to expose the chaos 
and put failing politicians like Chris Grayling on the spot. Of course, that is to forget that Mr Trump's actions were once witnessed here in Scotland, long before he seized the White House. On the day after the independence referendum in 2014, at least three national newspapers were barred from attending a press conference at Butte House with First Minister Alex Salmond, who used the event to announce his resignation. I was among those prevented from attending, while the Daily Telegraph's reporter was physically blocked from entering the building by taxpayer-funded civil servants when he tried to cover it anyway. It was a shameful episode that never attracted the UK-wide attention and condemnation it deserved. In Christmas of 2014, addressing the media in Butte House, Nicola Sturgeon promised there would be no media bans while she was First Minister. To the best of my knowledge, and to her credit, she has resolutely kept that promise. If Mr Trump learned from his one-time pal Salmon, perhaps Theresa May picked up a few ideas too. Last year, the Herald's sister paper, The National, reported it was banned from a press briefing with the Prime Minister. Just as the Scottish Government's actions were wrong in 2014, so too were the UK Government's actions wrong on that occasion, and must not happen on her next visit north. But someone who has perhaps learned most from Salmond is Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. After all, the pair spent many hours together in the same voting lobby in the Commons, when Mr Corbyn repeatedly broke the whip and showed disloyalty to his party, something which is a heinous crime for any other MP now that the hard left is in charge. As you may have noticed, some of the mainstream media are slightly hostile and critical, Mr Corbyn told cheering supporters last month at a rally in Broxtow. The new the Labour leader railed against Sky News for having the audacity to ask the questions the reporter wanted to ask, rather than the questions Corbyn wanted to answer. That's not how it works, Jeremy, and it's not how it should ever work. As Helen Lewis pointed out in a New Statesman article last week, Mr Corbyn was asked why nine MPs had left his party which feels like a reasonable line of questioning in a week where nine MPs had left his party. Back in 2014, the more extreme wings of the independence movement decided the mainstream media was their enemy. Some even convinced themselves that marching on the BBC's HQ in Glasgow would convince sceptical Scots to vote yes. But not even the most hardline pro-independence conspiracy theorists can hold a candle to the JC4PM brigade. To the best of my knowledge, nobody has ever needed a bodyguard at an SNP conference. Yet that's what happened at the Labour conference in 2017, when the highly respected BBC political editor Laura Kunzberg needed security protection for daring to ask questions of the party's leader. 
And a key difference is that while Nicola Sturgeon is surrounded by some of the best and level-headed political strategists in the business, Jeremy Corbyn is surrounded by people who generally think online blog, The Canary, is a reputable news outlet. We live in a world where those on the extremes of politics are rising to the top. That inevitably brings with it a dangerous belief that the mainstream media is the enemy of the people. Such disdain for journalism has serious consequences by contributing towards a situation where freedom of the press is at risk. Think that can't happen in the UK? Take a look at Northern Ireland, where journalists have been arrested after obtaining documents which suggest police collusion in the cover-up of six murders. Trevor Burney and Barry McCaffrey helped make a documentary called No Stone Unturned, which re-examined the murder of six people in County Down in 1994. Nobody has ever been charged. Last week, the two men presented themselves to a police station and had their bail extended for a further six months. The National Union of Journalists has warned of a blatant attempt to thwart the massive international campaign against the arrest of two journalists whose only crime is their search for truth and justice. Amnesty International has warned that press freedom is at risk right here in the UK. That should serve as an urgent wake-up call to every politician who wants to muzzle a journalist for asking difficult questions. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cune Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. This is an article from The Herald, 1st of March 2019. Suitcase and guitar in hand, Simon Kempston on how his travels inspire him. The much-admired singer and songwriter who is based in Edinburgh is currently playing a string of dates in New Zealand, followed by gigs in Germany and Switzerland. Hard working doesn't even begin to describe it, but then this is an artist who has already played in 32 countries. Kempston, who is also a noted fingerstyle acoustic guitarist, finally released to some acclaim his latest album, Broken Before, it highlights his electric guitar style and an approach to subject matters. For steer clear of the usual themes of love and attraction in favour of more unexpected topics, many of them political in nature. The title track of his earlier album, The Last Car, examined the fate of a worker dumped on a scrap heap after the closure of Linwood Car Plant in 1981. The title track of an earlier album, The Last Car, examined the fate of a worker dumped on a scrap heap after the closure of Linwood Car Plant in 1981. 
Where do his guitar skills come from? I was about eight years old when I first picked up the guitar. He says by phone from Bad Gomstum, Germany. I'd been learning a piano for a year, and my parents were keen on me to learn a second instrument, and that transpired to be a classical guitar. I studied that, and I worked through all the grades while I was still at school. His albums and constant touring since then have earned him much disdain. Phrase. Alan Morrison, written in Sunday Herald, described as one of Scotland's very best singer-songwriters. The musician Tom Robinson in BBC Six Radio signalled out his beautifully authentic guitar style and heartful vocal. Remember, this weekly digest program is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qnreview.com/freepodcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times, and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now back to the main program. The Herald Scotland Sport, recorded on the first of March, twenty nineteen. John Kennedy. There was no chance I was leaving Celtic for Leicester City. By Alison McConnell. John Kennedy rebuffed the call to head to Leicester alongside Brendan Rodgers, Chris Davies, and Colo Tour, with the 35-year-old insisting that the emotional pull of Celtic was too difficult to sever. There wasn't a moment when I might have gone too, admitted Kennedy. Instead, the young coach found himself on the cusp of being thrown into the role with Peter Lowell, pulling up at Lennoxtown on Monday afternoon as Rogers was heading to Leicester to formalise his move to the Premier League side. As it transpired, Neil Lennon was in place in time for the game against Hearts as Celtic moved swiftly, but it was Kennedy who was asked to hold Vort in the immediate and shocking aftermath of Rogers' exit. I had a great relationship with Brendan," said Kennedy. "The first I spoke with him about this was Monday morning. He said he was probably going to speak with Leicester and to get ready to take the team. Peter arrived at the training ground in the afternoon, discussed the possible plans, and told me that I was wanted here to prepare the team and if there was going to be an appointment, that I'd be assistant manager. For me, I've had a really close attachment with this club. A lot of people say it and that kind of stuff." But I've spent a large chunk of my life here in terms of being a player and working behind the scenes. There's certainly an emotional attachment there. To leave would be very difficult for me. This is another great opportunity for me to move up and progress, and hopefully finish the job that's been started. Kennedy was in the dugout on Wednesday night as Neil Lennon made his return to Celtic. The Irishman's second stint in the managerial seat got off to a scripted start with a last-minute winner at Tynecastle. It's a short period now until the end of the season, but I know what he's like, and he's a born winner," said Kennedy, who was a player alongside Lennon under Martin O'Neill. He appreciates that Lennon was a safe bet in the short-term option, and has acknowledged that his stay could well last longer than the summer. He wants to come in and achieve things, knowing the culture here. He knows the environment, so nothing is going to shock him. Nothing is going to surprise him. As soon as he stepped into the role, he knew what he was walking into. He will quickly assess the players, but having been around the games and having been with Hibs, he'll already have a good grasp on who they are and what they are about. He'll now just get to know them a bit more intimately and build relationships. I'm sure he'll be a huge success, and then in the summer we'll see where the thing goes. But he would certainly be one longer term. 
who would be a strong candidate. Kennedy admitted, however, that there was a shock for the players this week as news broke that Rodgers was on his way out the back door of the club to Leicester. It has been a bit of a whirlwind, but it's been good that there's a bit of closure as well because sometimes when these things happen it drags on for a bit, but the club have been well prepared and got things sorted very quickly, so we move on, he said. When the players came in to the news it was a case of what's going on, so I was honest with them and told them the situation and what was possibly going to happen in the next 24 hours. Much of the success we've had with Brendan going might turn a few heads and create uncertainty. Players still have to go and deliver success. A manager leads it and will be the face of it, but players are the most important people at any club, as they are the ones who step on the pitch and have to deliver for the manager. I've seen numerous good managers that players don't perform for, and they are out of a job. Brendan has come in, a fantastic manager with a fantastic group of players, and it clicked, so we are successful. Players are a huge part of that. The support behind them, with the backroom staff, is very stable as well. We're in a good place. Often when these things happen, it can be a moment of crisis or turmoil, and players aren't confident, and things are all over the place. But behind the scenes, things are very stable. Neil will add to that, put on a stamp, and we kick on from there. There remains the palpable anger from the support over the timing of Rodgers' exit, but the focus will move sharply given the games that lie in wait for Celtic now. Lennon faces a return to Easter Road on Saturday evening in a Scottish Cup quarter-final tie before games against Aberdeen and Rangers at the end of the month. Such games will shape how Celtic's season plays out. They are all in a good place, stressed Kennedy. The response in training on Tuesday was very, very positive. There was almost a cause for them. Because they want to prove, okay, the manager has left, but we're as strong as ever. By Alston McConnell. Sex workers aim to shape the future of Scotland's prostitution laws. An article by Katie Johnston, freelance journalist, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday, the 5th of March, 2019. In a normal job... You wouldn't think twice about joining a union to help negotiate pay deals, protect your rights as a worker and ensure safety in the workplace. That wasn't an option for Glasgow-based sex worker Megara Fury, which is what prompted her to seek union backing to start setting up her own branch. The first of its kind in Scotland, GMB's new adult entertainment branch will be represented by workers across the country, including transgender and BME officers. Where would you go if you were in a normal job and someone was making your job unsafe, Miss Fury said? You'd go to a union. You'd join a union and they'd stick up for you. The 35-year-old has said she hopes the branch will kick-start a change in Holyrood's prostitution laws. While it is not illegal to sell sex in Scotland, nor is it illegal to work in the general erotic industry, there are strict laws against soliciting or street prostitution and brothel-keeping. In 2017, the Scottish National Party backed plans to amend broader prostitution laws in Scotland to replicate Scandinavian law, which criminalises individuals who pay for sex, but not the workers who sell it. SNP's proposed Scottish model aims to decriminalise the sale of sex, 
ban the purchase of sex and offer support to those wishing to exit commercial sexual exploitation. But Scotland's new sex workers' union have argued that this policy fails to account for many workers in the erotic industry who have no desire to leave their trade. Ms Fury said, Sex work covers everything from stripping to burlesque go-go dancers, cam workers, people who make porn, any sort of sexual labour or erotic service is under sex work. There are laws in place that are making everyone's work unsafe and there are proposals to bring in new laws that could make it even less safe. It doesn't make the work go away. Even if you criminalise clients, it's not going to end demand. Basically, all it does is remove any safeguards that we've got. Under Scots law, an indoor sex business becomes an illegal brothel when there is more than one sex worker operating, meaning that sex workers in this country have to work alone. Although the industry itself is not criminalised in Scotland, the legal stipulation that all work must be carried out in isolation has a direct impact on the safety of workers, something GMB's new branch hopes to challenge at Holyrood. Ms Fury argues that safeguards like call screening mobile apps as well as any practical support workers might receive from Scottish-based peer-led organisation Umbrella Lane have quickly become vital components of modern sex work. These tools, she says, ought to be additional safety measures and not, as she suggests they have become, a sole means of ensuring sex workers are protected in Scotland. Our main aims are to secure workers' safety and workers' rights. We're also hoping to have something to do with sex work included in discrimination laws, Ms Fury explained. We want people to be safe. We want to end discrimination and we want to have the same rights as every other self-employed person. We're trying to take the sex out of sex workers because we just want to be seen as workers. She added, we make up approximately 80,000 workers in the UK who are unrepresented and they should be represented. Ms Fury is hopeful that by giving workers a voice, the new union will be able to overturn the SNP's Nordic model leanings. Ms Fury credits her own experience in Ireland, where legislation on the sale of sex changes when you cross the border between North and South, as what kicked off a lot of her personal activism. Where Ireland currently operates under a similar policy to Scotland, Northern Ireland adopts a Nordic model approach, criminalising all clients engaging in and paying for sexual services. Clients being fearful of being arrested made the usual safety checks almost impossible to carry out, which seriously affected the safety of my work, she said. This is something we want to avoid happening across the board in Scotland. This union is about giving workers their autonomy to be able to run their business however they see fit, so long as it's safe. 
Ria Wolfson, GMB organiser for Glasgow City, has been vocal in her support work of Miss Fury and her new branch's ambitions to challenge existing policy. She told how sex workers had been excluded from both Holyrood and the general conversation about sex work for too long. Miss Wolfson said... There will be a right side of history and a wrong side of history on this one. From the trade union perspective, it's an unusual venture, not because of the work they do, but because they are self-employed and that's not how we typically work. It's about collectivising this work. It's about finding a way to make sex workers feel less isolated because everything in the law is geared to isolate them, physically and otherwise, which raises questions about their safety. Ms Wolfson added on the question of legislation, Decriminalisation is not only a practical but a sensible and a moral step in terms of protecting women and protecting workers. Because of the Scottish Government definition that sex work is violence against women, the service providers, for example HIV testing, are mostly anti-decriminalisation, which makes them totally inaccessible and presupposes the conclusion to the conversation. She added, You can't have a conversation about sex work without sex workers, and that's one of the things that the GMB wants to make sure we change. The endeavours of GMB Scottish sex worker activists has been supported by sex workers across the country and the Scottish Liberal Democrats. The Scottish Lib Dems opted to back the full decriminalisation of sex workers and their clients as policy at their party conference in Hamilton last week. But SNP MSP John Mason, representative for Glasgow Shettleston, said he continues to firmly back his party's proposed stance on sex work. He said, everyone is entitled to defend their interests. I would accept that there are a few sex workers that are doing this out of choice, but I would suggest that it's a very small number. The vast majority, mainly of women, but some men as well, are in sex work or prostitution because either they've been forced to by financial circumstances, addiction or a partner, or they are being trafficked. He added, the argument from a lot of former sex workers is that they are being abused across the board, and so, therefore, we should oppose commercial sexual exploitation across the board. As part of their policy protecting the human rights of sex workers, Amnesty International advises, quotes, there is no reliable evidence to suggest that decriminalisation of sex work would encourage human trafficking, end of quotation. It adds that under the Nordic model, sex workers are still penalised for working together or organising in order to keep themselves safe. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. 
If you would like to volunteer and become an Access to Audio Ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at That's com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141-772-3976 or email information at qnreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qnreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. Article from Herald Scotland, 5th of March, 2019, Sport. Neil Lennon hints at Mikhail Lustig still having a Celtic future, by Alison McConnell. Reports of Mikhail Lustig's demise appear to have been greatly exaggerated. The expectancy has been that Lustig will return to his homeland at the end of the season without Celtic triggering the additional year on his contract, but Neil Lennon believes that there is still something for Lustig, capped 73 times for Sweden, to offer. Indeed, Lennon has hinted that the fullback could yet remain at Celtic beyond this season if the Irishman gets the parkhead job on a permanent basis. Prior to his departure from the club last week, Brendan Rodgers had pointed towards Lustig's time at the club coming to an end with a public courting of a right-back. That was addressed in the short term, with Jeremy Tollian being brought in on loan in the January transfer window from Borussia Dortmund, but was benched for the Scottish Cup win over Hibs on Saturday, with Lustig restored to the starting eleven. Lustig has been linked with a move to Swedish side AIK, which would fit in with his domestic situation, as it is believed the player favoured a return to Scandinavia to fit in with the education system for his two young daughters. I'm not writing him off, I know what he is capable of, said Lennon, who signed the player for Celtic in 2012, and what a player he is. What Mikhail has done for the last seven or eight years is play non-stop football. Whether it be 40 or 50 games a season here or European qualifiers, World Cup qualifiers, finals. He has been through the rigours of a physically demanding season. He has been playing every game possible, and eventually the fatigue or stiffness, or whatever you want to call it, creeps in. But this guy has been a top, top player for this club, and a top player for his country as well, and I think he's got plenty to offer Celtic. I don't know what will happen, but we will sit down and discuss things. And Lustig is not the only one who could have a reprieve at the club. Lee Griffiths has not featured for Celtic since the beginning of December after well-documented personal issues. The Scotland striker had netted just six goals this term after a sporadic campaign even before he was granted leave from the club to deal with ongoing issues. Griffiths has worked with the club's medical staff to focus on his physical fitness but has not yet been involved with the rest of the first team squad. Prior to Celtic's Europa League tie against Valencia last month, Rogers was reluctant to elaborate on just where Griffiths was in terms of a return to involvement, insisting that it was best if there were no further headlines around the player. Former Celt Chris Commons claimed yesterday that Lennon had spoken more to Griffiths in the last week than Rogers did in the month. Rogers had issued a public rebuke to the player when he was photographed drinking and gambling at a racetrack during the winter break. 
when the rest of the squad were out at Dubai and a mid-season training camp. Having missed almost three months of training and playing, it remains questionable whether Griffiths will feature before the end of the season, but Lennon plans to get a feel of just where he is physically and mentally. The sooner we get Lee back, the better, he said. Obviously, you are keeping tabs on that as well and want him to get back on the training ground as soon as possible. He's not close, not at the moment, no. I don't know if this season is feasible. We will have to gauge that. Lennon also expects that he will see the best of Captain Scott Brown between now and the end of the season. The Celtic captain signed a two-year extension to his deal, turning down a move to Australia in the process. The midfielder had been wanted by A-League newcomers Western Melbourne, but opted to remain with Celtic, where it seemed inevitable he will progress long-term into a coaching role. Brown set up Odson Edwards' 92nd-minute winner at Tynecastle last Wednesday night and then secured Celtic's passage into the William Hill Scottish Cup with a second goal at Easter Road on Saturday. And having secured his future, Lennon expects to get a consistent finale from Brown. I know what it's like to be getting into your mid-thirties when you're not too sure of your next step and people are saying, you can go to America or you can go to Australia, said Lennon. But he is still more than good enough to play here for another couple of years. He has a contract, and I'm delighted because it will settle him down. We are seeing the best of Scott Brown again, whereas before he was maybe a bit off the boil because there were other things swimming around in his head. He is so important to me and John Kennedy. Like your Lustics and your James E. Forrests, you need those sort of players who have been the course before. They are important to me personally at this stage, and obviously the backroom staff and Damien Duff are huge as well. This is an article from The Herald. Punk poet John Cooper Clark comes to Glasgow to reveal his debt to Bernard Manning. The article's by Brian Beacombe on the 8th of March, 2019. John Cooper Clark's unique Salford voice has long been associated with the punk movement. The defiant, semi-skeletal image, the raven hair, sunglasses and stick-thin trousers sitting perfectly at home alongside the archaic stripped-down music of the late 70s. But if you read his poem, Salome Maloney, and listen very carefully, you can hear Bernard Manning in amongst the lines. Surely not, you say. What connection could the master of the mother-in-law joke have with the master of modern poetry? It transpires that Manning, in fact, set Cooper Clark on the road to lyrical fame in the build-up to his Glasgow appearance this week. The poet flashes back to late 60s Manchester to Bernard Manning's Embassy Club, where plastic pint pots were heaped on metal trays and dumped onto cheap Formica tables, while punters listened to gags as abrasive as the cleaner used to cl- as abrasive as the cleaner used to clear the larger pipes. It all sounds very incongruous, but what happened was, I had pounded the pavements of Manchester, trying to get a gig for ages. Cooper Clark recalls, it was a long time before the punk rock days, and I suppose I was channeling Stanley Holloway and the music hall monologues. Anyway. There was a raft of clubs in Manchester at the time, Fagan's, Jerry's Piccadilly Club and Fufu's Palace, Drag Act, a cabaret joint, but they weren't interested in poetry. They thought it was highfalutin shit that the punters ain't going to dig. So there was only Bernard left, and by the time I went to see him, I were a bit desperate. 
It was my last chance to make something work, so I said, "Mr. Dent Manning, my dad's a massive fan of yours." Then I told him I were a poet, and he said, "Does very good Manning impression. They don't like poetry here, son. Have you seen any, my audience? They're fucking ignorant. They're not going to like it." But I persisted. I said, "I think they will, Mr. Manning." Bernard wasn't convinced. But I knew he had once been a singer with a dance band, and he knew the world of mecca ballrooms. So I hit him with this ballroom poem I'd just written, Salome Maloney. Cooper Clark recites part of his classical tale. Lacquered in a beehive, her barnet didn't budge. Wet looked lips, she smiled as sweet as fudge. She had a number on her back and sequins on her tits. The tutorial requirement for females in the Ritz. By the end of the poem, Manning was laughing hard. He said, "I'll give you twenty minutes." Cooper Clark was in the door, his showbiz career officially running, and he survived and thrived. People say it must have been rough doing them punk gigs later on. They were a fucking doodle compared to working in Bernard's place. Cooper Clark's word creation skills has developed, oddly enough, as a result of ca- contracting TB as a child, leaving him with an emaciated look, and being sent to live with his aunt in Wales. Once I'd had the disease, it left me prone to every kind of pulmonary disorder. I had friends that were out indulging in robust pursuits, which I was excluded from because I had to stay indoors. I think that made me cultivate an inner life. On leaving school, Cooper Clark became a lab technician, but meantime had been sending manuscripts to publishers. The writing dream floated in the back of his mind. There was a pivotal moment as a teenager when he joined a beat group, and a bit to impress a young lady showed her his lyrics. She thought they were pretty good, so I recited them as poetry at his beatnik event. It went down really well, but it didn't do anything for about fifteen years. Life got in the way. In between times, Cooper Clark married at twenty-one, then became an apprentice-type compositor, based in Dorset. Neither manage nor routine employment suited him at the time. He moved back to Manchester, focused on his art, and was eventually spotted by the head of CBS. In the late seventies, he fell into punk. His poems about everyday life, about going on holiday to Spain, for example, summed up the essence of punk: a distilled simplicity and rawness. Punk's house poet became a household name, and soon he was on stage with the likes of Elvis Costello or Buzzcocks. But the cash he was making wasn't going into pension plans; it was going back into the community in the form of cash. Transfers to local narcos. As a result, Cooper Clark lost pretty much all of the eighties due to drugs, but gave them up in nineteen ninety-two. Today he lives in Essex. At seventy, he's clean and healthy, and has published a new book of his poetry, "The Luckiest Guy Alive." It's been a long time since I had a published work out there," he said. As a result, Cooper Clark lost pretty much of the eighties to drugs, but gave them up in nineteen ninety-two. Today he lives in Essex, 
At 70, he's clean and healthy and has published a new book of his poetry, The Luckiest Guy Alive. It's been a long time since I had a published work out there, he admits, of the 30-year hiatus. Why so long, John? I think I'm the only poet these days who doesn't have a book out he loves. It's jealousy. What about me? No, I've been working on live shows. It wasn't planned. It just happened. For a long time, I didn't have any representation. It was just me. He has enjoyed the haphazardous. Well, it turns out it was the right thing to do. I think poetry is a frenetic medium. It should be performed, he grins. He adds, grinning. But I don't want to put people off buying the book. Consider it as you would a lyric sheet. Come to the gig and see me live. Then buy the book. When you read it, you'll still see my face and you'll hear my voice. He's happier with his voice these days. Of course, you occasionally have that voice in your head that says, you're going to get rumbled. And what are you doing with this piece of... Because what I do isn't work, as any sane person would understand the term. But I love what I do. I am, think I'm blessed. And I finally, I would like people to say, it was special. John Cooper, the City Hall's Glasgow, March the 9th. The luckiest guy alive, Picador Poetry, is out now at £14.99. The Herald Scotland Sport, recorded on the 1st of March 2019. Damien Duff, Celtic is more than a club, you're fighting for a cause, by Duncan Hare. Damien Duff is ready to fight for the cause at Celtic in his new role as first-team coach. The Irishman recently joined the club's coaching setup, initially working with the reserves, but after Tuesday's shock departure of Brendan Rodgers to Leicester, he was moved up to form part of interim boss Neil Lennon's backroom staff, along with John Kennedy. On Wednesday night, the new management team debuted with a last-gasp 2-1 win at Hearts, a result which keeps the hoops eight points clear of Rangers at the top of the Ladbrokes Premiership. Former Republic of Ireland international Dove told Celtic TV he is keen to provide whatever help is required for success. I'm ready for it, he said. I know the role, and I know the club, and it's a massive honour. Celtic is more than a club. Here, you're fighting for more than that. You're fighting for a cause as well. I know what the club means to fans. It means the same to me, so I'm ready. I understand the club and Celtic Football Club aside, myself and football. I'm all about emotion and enthusiasm. Duff admits there is part of him and that's sad to see the back of the reserves for now. The 39-year-old former Chelsea, Newcastle and Fulham player said, I felt like they were starting to really understand me and the way I work. The game against Kilmarnock Reserves is the best they've been. And for 70 to 80 minutes, they were brilliant. What I've enjoyed up until now is improving young players. I feel I'm good at it, so I guess I'll miss that side of it. But I'll still be keeping an eye on them and helping them whenever I can. There were four or five of them training with the first team after the Hearts game. That's what the club's built on, bringing you through. So nothing's going to change. It's obviously a massive step up to the first team. There will be more quality and a quicker tempo, but I'll just be helping the gaffer and John wherever I can. That's what I'm here for. By Duncan Hare. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. 
Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager, Sophie Weldon, said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk. That is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D dot org dot UK or phone 01283 that's 01283 or on 07540-724-063. That is 07540-724-063. To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook, or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Rugby, the Guinness Pro 14. Zebra 10, Glasgow 42. SNP currency plan based on economic boom after yes vote, branded fantasy. Paediatric workforce on brink of crisis with 100 extra doctors needed, experts warn. An article by Helen McArdle, health correspondent. Brexit. Emmanuel Macron brands Brexiteers angermongers as he calls for EU reform. Brexit Labour to back second referendum when Theresa May brings her deal back to Commons. Jackie McNamara, Celtic are Neil Lennon's blood. Neil Mackay, why the courts must now have their say on Bloody Sunday. An article by Neil Mackay, writer at large. The Herald, Monday, March the 4th, Sport, Rugby, the Guinness Pro 14, Zebra 10, Glasgow 42, Warriors in control of own destiny in bid for home sweet home. A devastating first half combined with Munster losing to the Scarlets in Wales has left Glasgow Warriors in control of their own fate in the Guinness Pro 14, as they try to battle through to the final in their home city in May. With four games to go, Glasgow have opened up a three-point lead in Conference A, but know they have work to do. They may have overtaken Munster, but the Irish have an easier run-in, with only their away game at Benetton Treviso looking a major obstacle, while Glasgow still have to go to Leinster and host both Ulster and Edinburgh, 
two dangerous opponents. So, no counting chickens for Dave Rennie, the head coach, after seeing his side romp through the first half before concentration levels dipped and replacements disrupted the smooth running of the team. The game was gone by half-time, but we were really disappointed with the second half, he reflected later. We were too loose and lacked discipline at key times. We turned over a lot of ball. I felt we thought the job was done and we would be able to run over the top of them. You've got to keep working hard for each other. We've done well through this period, picking up 19 points out of a possible 20. Obviously that Munster's 10-6 defeat in Llanethley is a great result from our perspective and puts us back in control. It's a nice way to finish off this little block. What encouraged Rennie was that a lot of the best bits came from players who need big games to push for places in the knockout games that are coming up. I think we've coped pretty well during the Six Nations period, Rennie added. We always want to create good depth and competition for places. Even though we've been missing a lot of guys, we've still had a lot of experience on the field. That helps a lot of the younger guys slot in. We've still felt pretty confident despite the guys being away. But we've also gone into the games knowing we've had to play well to win. It's an important period. You've still got to be able of finding a way to win, even when so many guys are missing. Meanwhile, Benetton 18, Edinburgh 10, and the ghosts of seasons past for Edinburgh. Edinburgh are in danger of repeating another season where a Heineken Cup run is accompanied by failure in the league. After qualifying for a home European quarter-final against Munster with some storming performances in the pool stage of that competition, they have lost three out of four league matches to plunge from second to fifth in their Guinness Pro 14 Conference. It has echoes of 2012 when they reached the Heineken Cup semi-final but finished 11th in the Pro 12 as it was then though Richard Cockrell, the head coach, has promised the battle is not over and he still believes they can get enough wins to reach the end-of-season playoffs. The main similarity is the trouble Edinburgh have at producing results when they have to dip below their accepted first team, for example when players are taken away for international duty or when they need to rest ahead of big European weekends. That is where their strength in depth is tested and where it has been found wanting. Last year they supplied about half a dozen players to the national squad and won all of the four matches that clashed with the Guinness Six Nations to set themselves up for a playoff spot. This year they are supplying up to ten of the playing squad and more to the training group but have lost three out of four during the Six Nations window. If they do fail to climb from fifth to at least third in the final four games, then for all the controversy surrounding their defeat in Treviso, it will not have been the game that cost them a winning season. That dubious honour can go to defeats by basement clubs, the Dragons and Kings, as well as throwing away a 17-point lead to Cardiff Blues. 
They always knew the season finale was going to be tough. They find themselves desperate for wins and playing the other four teams in the top five of their conference in successive matches. The one at the weekend against Benetton was the first of those, and despite taking a narrow lead into the final quarter, they came away from a scrappy encounter without even the consolation of a losing bonus point. Said Cockrell, In isolation, it's disappointing, but I just said to the boys, we've got four games to go, there's every chance we can qualify in that top three. We'll fight every inch to make sure that we do that. Our season is very much alive, but when you get an opportunity, you have to take it. It's hard work in the Six Nations period, but we have to deal with that. We have to learn, when we're two points up, not to overplay in our own half. We don't have to force the game. We had to control the game, and at times we didn't. The only way is to do it, to make mistakes and to learn. It's been a brutal learning curve for Edinburgh's youngsters. They were hanging on to a two-point lead when Tom Brown, the fullback, found himself chasing the ball over the line with Antonio Rizzi, the replacement Fleahive, and Monte Iona, the wing, also in hot pursuit. Television replays later showed he had got a hand to the ball ahead of the others, but George Clancy, the referee, and Alan Valthone, the television match official, took almost no time in ruling that Ritzy had grounded it and Edinburgh were left chasing the game, with a late Ritzy penalty costing them even the losing bonus point. Look, they have only lost at home to Leinster and Ulster the whole season, so they are a difficult side to beat, Cockerell added. Maybe we have made it more difficult for ourselves than we needed to. I look at the try they scored from the kick through, but we had the opportunity to exit our 22 better, and we need to learn that. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk, and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cue and Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland Politics Recorded on the 4th of March 2019 SNP currency plan based on economic boom after yes vote branded fantasy by Scottish political editor Tom Gordon SNP plans for a new Scottish currency have been branded a fantasy after Derek Mackay admitted that they relied on an economic boom after independence. The finance secretary said higher growth would cut Scotland's £13 billion deficit and create the right conditions for a rapid switch from sterling. The SNP's Growth Commission last year said it would probably be at least a decade after independence before a new currency was viable. It said Scotland would need to have 
a 6% deficit to establish market credibility and public spending should be kept under very tight control. Critics say the prescription would essentially continue Tory austerity. But Mr Mackay, who is under pressure from SNP activists not to keep sterling, said a faster timetable was possible without austerity through stronger growth. Official forecast puts Scottish GDP growth at around 1% until 2023. The Growth Commission, which Mr Mackay sat on, suggested it could take 10 years to reach 2.5% and 25 years to reach 3.5%. But Mr Mackay told BBC Sunday Politics Scotland that after a safe and secure transition with sterling, independence could deliver a swift GDP boost. He said, We've got the ambition and the commitment to have an independent currency and the process to take us there. We want to grow our economy. Yes, we want to bring that estimated deficit down. Growing our economy is an alternative to austerity. We could reduce that notional deficit, accelerate the economic growth and move to that independent currency when we're able to do so. By setting out the tests, that would guide us there. With the powers of independence, we can stimulate the economic growth, grow our economy, get that national deficit down. Mr Mackay and SNP Deputy Leader Keith Brown will ask SNP members next month to vote on whether it should be party policy to establish an independent currency and whether an SNP government should aim to complete preparations to enable Holyrood to take a decision on establishing a new currency by the end of the first term of an independent parliament. However, their conference motion also says an economic stimulus at the point of independence should be considered, meaning extra public spending on tax cuts, both of which could add to the deficit and so delay any new currency. Tory MSP Murdo Fraser said this is fantasy economics from Derek Mackay and the SNP. The idea that Scotland's £13 billion deficit can be halved within a few years without austerity is absurd. That would either require unprecedented cuts to public services, higher taxes and more borrowing, or more likely a toxic mix of all three. The SNP should be focusing on improving education standards, fixing our NHS and growing our economy, not obsessing about separation. Mr Mackay also said that the SNP would want an independent Scotland to be in the EU, but said it was not his party's policy to join the Euro. Pamela Nash, chief executive of the Scotland and Union Group, added, The SNP's latest independence blueprint is a recipe for deeper and tougher austerity, which would inflict hardship on families across our country. Derek Mackay's support for ditching the pound and introducing a new currency is the height of irresponsibility, and even he has been forced to admit it would be a high risk. He is all over the place, also astoundingly ignoring that new member states in the EU must commit to joining the Euro. Scottish Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie said Derek Mackay is making it up as he goes along. The Growth Commission already states that the cuts to public services would be deep for an independent Scotland. But that is not enough for the SNP. They want it faster and deeper. Brexit shows that breaking up long-term economic partnerships is painful. Independence would be so much worse by Scottish political editor Tom Gordon. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. 
Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. Paediatric workforce on brink of crisis, with 100 extra doctors needed, experts warn. An article by Helen McArdle, health correspondent, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 5th of March 2019. An extra 100 consultant paediatricians must be trained and recruited in Scotland to cope with increasing demand, according to a report today which warns that shortages are putting young people's health at significant risk. Scotland's paediatric workforce is on the brink of crisis, with increasing vacancy rates, a looming retirement time bomb and younger medics increasingly shifting away from full-time working, the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health warns. It comes against a 30% climb in emergency hospital admissions among children in Scotland from just under 45,400 in 2012-13 to just over 59,000 in 2017-18. The increase is being driven by a growing number of children surviving with complex conditions or suffering from multiple illnesses such as type 2 diabetes and asthma, as well as long delays in diagnosis for autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. This is exacerbating rota gaps, with general paediatrics as a speciality grappling with, quotes, the greatest difference between demand and actual consultant numbers, end of quotation. The report adds, the level of paediatric admissions in some units means that double rotas are increasingly required, that is, two trainees in service at one time. Long-standing difficulties in recruiting enough paediatric consultants to safely fill rotas eventually forced NHS Lothian to close its children's ward at St John's Hospital in Livingston to inpatient admissions in June 2017. Initially a temporary measure for that summer, the closure has continued and the unit will not open again on a 24-hour basis until March the 18th this year, but even then only on a four-day basis. It expected to resume a normal service again from October. The RCPCH said workforce planning in the past had been incoherent and inconsistent and that the shortfall in medical paediatric staffing across Scotland is clearly seen in rates of rota gaps and vacancies which are higher than the UK overall. The largest proportion of consultants in Scotland are aged 45 to 49, meaning, quotes, there may be a large number of consultants retiring at the same time in around 15 to 20 years. 
Growth in consultant numbers in Scotland has slowed and is now lagging behind the rest of the UK, said the report, with a 5% increase in consultant paediatricians in Scotland between 2015 and 2017, compared to 8.2% growth in England and 7.8% for the UK as a whole. It noted that trainee paediatricians in the UK increasingly wish to work less than full-time and that, quotes, this could lead to a dramatic fall in the whole-time equivalent, WTE, workforce in Scotland unless there is an increase in the headcount of doctors in training. The College recommends expanding the workforce by 82.5 WTE paediatric consultants, but adjusting for part-time working means this actually translates as a requirement for 100 extra doctors. Professor Steve Turner, Officer for Scotland at the RCPCH, said tackling the shortage of paediatric doctors needs to be a priority. We know that unless more doctors are trained to be paediatricians today, the situation where paediatric wards are being closed will only get worse. The good news is that we know that Scottish doctors want to train in paediatrics in Scotland and there are three young doctors applying for each job. We also know that doctors who train in Scotland become consultants in Scotland. However, the reality is that we are seeing vacancies and gaps in rotas across Scotland, especially in centres outside of the central belt. Our calculations suggest that at least 82 more consultant paediatricians need to be trained to meet demand. The need to increase trainee numbers in paediatrics has been recognised and we are grateful that eight additional posts will be available for 2019. But this is a one-off sticking plaster which does not address the underlying problem. I urge the Scottish Government, NHS Education Scotland and the Scottish Health Boards to reflect on our findings and seriously consider how best to implement our recommendations as a matter of urgency. Failing to take the necessary steps now will be to the detriment of our children, both today and in the future. Miles Briggs, Scottish Conservative Shadow Health Secretary, said these are truly shocking figures, highlighting a terrifying lack of paediatric doctors. It's extremely worrying that the SNP's failure to ensure we have enough paediatricians could jeopardise the treatment and care of children. Labour Shadow Cabinet Secretary for Health and Sport, Monica Lennon, said this expert report is a vitally important intervention that demands a serious response from the government. Our NHS is facing a workforce crisis with not enough staff to deliver the care patients deserve and people will be shocked to see that this extends to the care of our children. A Scottish Government spokeswoman said, The health of our children is paramount. That is why we have more than doubled the number of paediatric consultants under this government to 355 and increased the number of paediatric nurses by more than 40% in the last eight years. 
We have worked closely with the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health to agree the appropriate and sustainable paediatric trainee supply. As the report highlights, we have acknowledged the need to increase the number of paediatric trainees and have provided 18 additional posts approved since 2014, achieving a 100% full rate in recent recruitment rounds. The report also points out that trainees want to train in Scotland, where there is twice the UK average applicants for each available post. Work is underway to develop a comprehensive plan to help address some of the recruitment and retention challenges faced by our health and care sector. We have already published workforce plans covering the NHS, primary care and social care and an integrated health and social care workforce plan will be published shortly. Of course, the uncertainty around Brexit continues to pose a significant risk to recruitment in the NHS. Article from Herald Scotland, 5th of March 2019. Politics. Brexit. Emmanuel Macron brands Brexiteers angermongers as he calls for EU reform. French President Emmanuel Macron has torn into Brexiteers, calling them angermongers backed by fake news, whose lies and irresponsibility have thrown the whole of Europe into danger. In remarks that signalled uncompromising opposition to their demands over the conditions of Britain's EU departure, Mr Macron urged the rest of Europe to stand firm, proud and lucid in the face of this manipulation. The President launched his attack as part of a broader plea for reform of the EU, which he said had never been in so much danger. Brexiteers shot back by highlighting recent social unrest in France, saying Mr Macron should look to his own people first before lecturing Britain. Mr Macron's attack on Eurosceptics came in a 1,600-word comment piece that has been translated into 22 languages and has been published in newspapers in each of the EU's 28 member countries. Appearing in The Guardian, the essay said, Never since the Second World War has Europe been so essential, yet never has Europe been in such danger. Brexit stands as the symbol of that. He suggested that Brussels had failed to adequately respond to international crises, such as the financial crisis and mass migration, but insisted the answer was not to be found by leaving the bloc. The trap lies not in being part of the European Union. The trap is in the lie and the irresponsibility that can destroy it, Mr Macron said. Who told the British people the truth about their post-Brexit future? Who spoke to them about losing access to the EU market? Who mentioned the risks to peace in Ireland of restoring the border? Retreat internationalism offers nothing. It is rejection without an alternative. And this is the trap that threatens the whole of Europe. The anger mongers, backed by fake news, promise anything and everything. He added, We have to stand firm, proud and lucid in the face of this manipulation and say first of all what Europe is. Mr Macron said the EU had reconciled a continent destroyed by the First and Second World Wars, insisted it helped its members stand up to threats from aggressive major powers and take on digital giants. Signalling his hostility to a Brexit deal that would compromise the EU's core principles, he said he would tirelessly defend its model. 
Among his proposed freedom, protection and progress reforms were a rethink of the Schengen era of free movement, the creation of a common border force and a treaty on defence and security. He said the Brexit impasse is a lesson for us all and invoking language deployed by Brexiteers insisted in this Europe the peoples will really take back control of their future. Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt rejected Mr Macron's characterisation, telling BBC Radio 4's Today programme, I don't agree with that approach. We had a very robust referendum campaign in which claims were made, indeed exaggerated claims were made on both sides of the debate, and that's what happened not just in referendums but in general elections. British people are quite smart enough to be able to listen to the claims made by politicians in these situations and make their own judgment. He said the choice facing President Macron and other European leaders was whether they wanted a close friendship with a post-Brexit UK or a state of strategic competition with it. Former UKIP and Tory MP Douglas Carswell tweeted, Efforts to organise Europe by top-down design are destroying Europe. The fools that preside over Europe are too arrogant to see this a tragedy. Referring to the recent Yellow Vest protest in France, Leave.eu tweeted, Perhaps he should look to his own people first before lecturing Britain. This is an article from The Herald, 28th of February 2019. Brexit Labour to back second referendum when Theresa May brings her deal back to Commons. Shadow Chancellor John Macdonnell said the Labour would take the first opportunity to test whether MPs would back a public vote. But he stressed that Jeremy Corbyn's party would also continue to press for its own Brexit version and was still calling for a general election. Labour's Brexit blueprint was defeated by 240 votes to 323 in a Commons on Wednesday night and Mr Corbyn confirmed Labour would now have back a referendum in face of a damaging Tory Brexit or a no-deal departure from the European Union. But he insisted that Labour would also continue to support other available options to prevent either the Prime Minister's deal or the UK crashing out without an agreement. On ITV's Peston, the Shadow Chancellor set out Labour's approach, saying the move would be made when Miss May next risks a meaningful vote on a Brexit deal. That's the time when we'll have to put an amendment up, he said. But he added, we are still going to argue that we want a general election. We are still going to argue we think our deal that we have put up was the best option. He suggested either a deal will go through with to protect jobs and the economy, or to get some deal through, it will be conditional on going back to the people. Labour MPs Pete Kyle and Phil Wilson has put forward a compromise plan to back Miss May's deal with a condition that it is then put to a confirmatory public vote. Mr Corbyn has come under pressure from the Labour ranks to fall the party's full weight between a second referendum. After the results in Commons, shadowed Brexit spokesman Matthew Pennycook said it was now time to wholeheartedly get behind office to facilitate a new public vote that includes the option of staying in the EU. Owen Smith, who was sacked from the Saddle Cabinet for calling for a second referendum, told the Press Association now that Labour's version of Brexit has been rejected by Parliament, I expect Jeremy Corbyn to fall his full weight behind campaigning for a public vote. But former Minister Caroline Flint warned that a second referendum would be opposed by a number of Labour MPs, as well as members and voters who want the Labour Party to stand by its promise. 
and the promise was to respect the referendum. The Prime Minister's dramatic announcement on Tuesday that she would allow MPs to vote and to name the UK EU without a deal beyond March 29th took the sting out of Wednesday's Brexit vote, which had been expected to trigger a number of ministerial resignations. Any more significant Conservative bust-ups have now been delayed for up to two weeks. As Miss Mears prepares to bring her withdrawal agreement back to the Commons for a meaningful vote by March 12th, although there have been hints the showdown could be as soon as next week. Meanwhile, Health Secretary Matt Hannock again insisted that medicine supplies would be unhindered if there was a no-deal Brexit, following warnings from Royal College of Radiologists that some cancer treatments may have to be delayed. Hugh and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 3976 or email aaatl at That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141-772-3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland Sport Recorded on the 1st of March 2019 Jackie McNamara, Celtic are in Neil Lennon's blood, by Alan Temple. Former Parkhead favourite Jackie McNamara insists Celtic are in Neil Lennon's blood as he hailed the former club captain and head coach as the perfect man to fill the void left by Brendan Rodgers. The Parkhead board sent out an SOS for their former manager following Rodgers' short departure for Leicester City on Tuesday, with Lennon agreeing a deal until the end of the current campaign. His bid to guide the team into a historic triple treble began in earnest on Wednesday night with a last gasp 2-1 triumph over Hearts and McNamara has no doubt Celtic have found a safe pair of hands. He said, with the circumstances of Brendan's departure, it is a great fit for Lenny to come back in and steady things until the end of the season and see what happens from there. Celtic are in Neil's blood. He loves the club and enjoys the pressures and everything that goes with being Celtic manager. I'm sure he would love to still be playing for them, but managing is the next best thing. The challenge is still exactly the same. He has to win every game. It is a different pressure, and one that he has lived with as a manager and a player. He will know what to expect coming into the situation again. Tomorrow we'll see Lennon cross swords with Hibs at Easter Road in just his second match in the dugout since returning to Celtic, having left the capital club just last month. McNamara added, There are massive games coming up, and I think... That is why the fallout from Brendan's departure has been so severe. It is quite raw at the moment, with so much to play for this season. The triple treble, the timing wasn't great. But Neil will take the reins and with John Kennedy having been involved throughout the season with Brendan, that will help continuity.
Lennon won five major honours as Celtic boss after replacing Tony Mowbray in 2010 and guided the club to the last 16 of the Champions League, meaning he is sure to be in the running for the Hoops job on a long-term basis. Asked whether Lennon could stake a claim, McNamara added, Neil has the experience. He did well in Europe during his first spell, something that Brendan didn't manage to do. Neil had some wonderful nights in European competition, so there's that aspect of things. Long term, the board will look at that, but short term, the key is covering Brendan's departure. By Alan Temple. Neil Mackay. Why the courts must now have their say on Bloody Sunday. An article by Neil Mackay, writer-at-large, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 5th of March 2019. In a world of constantly shifting values, a few principles must remain sacrosanct. Among these are the rule of law, the right to justice, and the fact that a uniform is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's a bitter culture war brewing over plans to now charge former paratroopers with murder in connection with Bloody Sunday in Northern Ireland when 14 civilians died and another 11 were wounded after the British Army opened fire on a civil rights demonstration in Derry, Londonderry in 1972. You can see by the clunky name I use for the city, Derry if you're Catholic or Republican, Londonderry if you're Protestant or Loyalist, just how divided opinion is. If a society cannot agree on geographical terms, how can it find common ground on an issue so loaded with history? The divisions over the prosecution of soldiers run as deep in the rest of the UK. The right sees a betrayal of veterans. The left sees oppressive state forces brought to heel. Self-evidently, the paratroopers protest their innocence and victims' families demand justice. An announcement about possible prosecution will come on March the 14th. Let's remind ourselves of the facts before judgment is made. There have been two investigations by the British government. The Widgery Tribunal, held shortly after the killings, largely cleared soldiers and accepted claims they'd shot at terrorists. The report, however, was a whitewash. In 1998, the Savile Inquiry reinvestigated. After 12 years, it ruled the killings were unjustified and unjustifiable. Those shot were unarmed and not a threat. No bombs were thrown and soldiers knowingly put forward false accounts. Many victims were shot while running away or helping the wounded. The images of the day, the Catholic priest Edward Daly waving a blood-stained handkerchief as a white flag to soldiers not to fire on the injured, Troops shooting from street corners haunted Ireland and became a recruiting sergeant for the IRA. Without Bloody Sunday, the troubles may never have been so deadly. There's no question, then, that crimes were committed and must be answered. 
Four soldiers are most likely to be prosecuted. Lance Corporal F, Corporal P, Private R and Private U. All have anonymity. F admitted killing four people, but insisted it wasn't murder as he believed they were armed. The inquiry found, quotes, he fired either in the belief that no one in the area into which he fired was posing a threat of causing death or serious injury, or not caring whether or not anyone there was posing such a threat. End of quotation. P shot at least one of three casualties and, quotes, may have been responsible for all three. End of quotation. P said he didn't remember shooting R, probably shot 17-year-old Jackie Duddy, the first killed. You fired at and mortally wounded Hugh Gilmer as the latter was running. After Savo, David Cameron apologised. Johnny Mercer, a former army captain and Conservative MP, thinks it outrageous that veterans face prosecution so long after events. He wants to stop soldiers being pursued for historic allegations without fresh evidence. Boris Johnson weighed in, saying it's sickening that we are persecuting these elderly men for doing what they thought was their duty in uniform, under orders. One could argue that being in uniform requires the highest of standards. However, Mr Johnson also tweeted, what signal does it send to our brave armed forces? Colin Eastwood, SDLP leader, replied, it says, if you murder 14 unarmed civil rights marchers, you should expect to be prosecuted. Mr Eastwood is one of many calling for justice. The Derry Journal published an article yesterday listing a number of voices supporting prosecution. There is anger about the demands for exceptionalism for the military. As matters stand, then, the soldiers must be prosecuted. But if Britain had been wiser and braver at the end of the Troubles... Things could have been different. The creation of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, along the lines of the one established in South Africa to deal with the legacy of apartheid, would have been one sure way of drawing a line under the past. In South Africa, victims could speak of their pain to the world, and those who carried out acts of violence were given the opportunity to tell the truth. In return came amnesty from prosecution. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Northern Ireland would still have plenty to deal with today. Only last week the Supreme Court ruled that investigations into the murder of the Belfast solicitor Pat Finucane were not effective. The state is suspected of colluding with loyalist paramilitaries in his death. Also, last week, a jury was sworn in for the 1974 Birmingham pub bombings inquest. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission, however, would have been difficult for the British government given allegations of collusion. Once the ink was dry on the Good Friday Agreement, Britain was keen to untangle itself. 
No steps were taken for such a commission. Perhaps that should be reconsidered now, as the wounds of the past are left to miraculously heal themselves. There is a strange twilight world in Northern Ireland today when it comes to dealing with troubles-related offences. If a former paramilitary is convicted of an offence which took place before the Good Friday Agreement, they serve a maximum of two years. If the Bloody Sunday soldiers are convicted, they will be treated the same. They will not, as some have said, serve life in prison. According to the Pat Finnegan Centre, a human rights organisation, only four soldiers have been convicted of killing civilians in Northern Ireland. These trials took place before the Good Friday Agreement. One murder conviction was overturned on appeal. All four were freed after just five years of their life sentences. All were allowed to rejoin the army. With history weighing the scales, it is not only unjustifiable but unjust in the present circumstances for any British soldier who committed a crime in Northern Ireland, especially one as grave as participation in the Bloody Sunday shootings, to avoid prosecution. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission would have made things much different. Honest testimony would have allowed paratroopers to avoid prosecution for past crimes and for families to grieve over the truth. But that didn't happen, and now the courts must have their say. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review, and the producer was Jordan Duncan. Q&Review Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity, number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.